Surprise Box Music Wednesday with all the talk about Taylor Swift. I thought I'd play another female icon in music, an artist who so dominated the 80s and 90s there were university lectures about her. Uh, there was even an academic mini subdiscipline devoted to her name, Madonna Studies. Writing for The Guardian, Matt Kane stated that Madonna has broken down social barriers and brought marginalised groups to the forefront by frequently featuring LGBT, Latino and black culture in her works. And meanwhile, Australia's Taylor Swift fans set nearly... Uh, a new record is nearly one million joined Ticketek queue for Sydney show tickets. Uh, it's quite something, isn't it? What a phenomenon. Yeah. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't personally get it. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably not her target audience. <laughs> Gary, um, are you on there right now? Refreshing, 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 <laughs> Gary, for Taylor Swift? No. Oh. No. No, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm a big disappointment on the music front, and no, no. I, I've got four kids that have tried to educate me, but uh, it's something some people just don't get it. I did go to a Taylor Swift concert. Having You've said been? that, I'm not the target audience. I took my daughter to a Taylor Swift concert, really, in Auckland a few years ago. She's like she's incredibly impressive. She was brilliant, and she has a really cool way of speaking to girls and young women. A very mm. Empowering example, yeah. She's she, yeah, yeah. I can, very, very cool. I get it. Yeah. Uh, now, um, actually, if you are sitting online and refreshing, waiting for that Taylor Swift ticket, why don't you get in touch? Text me two one zero one. I'd love to hear uh, from you there uh, regarding the yeah a lot regarding veganism. I hate zealots and whingers. Thirty years vegan, always happy to engage if asked, but really try hard not to preach or argue. Going to a steak restaurant and complaining just Tars, the rest of us. Mm. I agree. Uh, another, I agree. Thank I agree. you, Gary. Uh, someone says, I'm with the vegans. I went to an Indian restaurant and wanted fish and chips. The arrogant owner wouldn't hear of it. <laughs> Is this person being sarcastic? Uh, mm-hmm. His menu, his business, what other industries expect to change his offering on the whim of a customer? Do you know the amount of compliance requirements you need to honestly say a dish is vegan? I have five restaurants, by the way. Wow. That's interesting. And vegans are welcome. You never know who listens to the panel. It is uh, 4.37, the panel, RNZ National. Good to be with you. Now, a few days ago, we talked about large classroom sizes. Always a contentious topic, whether or not to have a more open plan or keep the walls in for a more traditional classroom look. There is a move amongst some to actually put those walls back in. Quoting one principal, this kind of hot desking and sitting on beanbags and whatnot is really distressing for the kids. Now they're called flexible learning environments or MLEs, modern learning environments. One person who knows about them very well is Claire Amos, the principal at Albany High Senior High School. Kia ora Claire. Kia ora. Lovely to have you here and people brought up the example of Hobsonville Point School where you were a foundation deputy principal, and they've sort of yes. championed MLEs. Am I right? Absolutely. So I was lucky enough to be part of the foundation leadership team at Hobsonville Point Secondary School for five years, and I've now been the principal at Albany Senior High School for five years. And interestingly, Albany is who we actually looked to when we were developing the curriculum and how we were going to use our spaces at Hobsonville Point Secondary School. So I've sort of experienced 
um, two of the, the biggest ILEs in the Auckland area. And what I'd like to point out is I've done this after 15 years of leading and teaching in traditional high schools. So I have a really good view of what can work both in traditional spaces uh. and our innovative or flexible learning spaces as well. From the outset, what do you got? You've got a 50, 60 children classroom. You've got mm-hmm. noise and ruckus. You've got bean bags, and you've got lack of focus. <laughs> the noise and ruckus is one of the biggest misconceptions. So I've just actually finished my um, Masters of Educational Leadership and done research of community perceptions of innovative learning environments. And one of my biggest learnings was the misconceptions that exist out in the community. So there's a lot of car park conversations, what they've heard from their brothers, uncles, sisters, niece, um, and the experience that they might have had in school. And um, in secondary innovative learning environments or flexible learning environments are actually strangely quieter than traditional classrooms. And we can have upward of sort of 90 to 100 in a large shared space where there's multiple classes going on at the same time. And the beanbag thing is a misnomer as well. We don't actually have a beanbag in the school. (laughs) I know, I just want to say beanbag. Uh, Paula Penfold. (laughs) Uh, well, I'm probably then guilty of, of one of those misconceptions, which is I did assume that it would be noisier because of the number of kids and the, you know, the fact that open spaces are noisy. And it had me worrying for, for instance, kids with ADHD or who are neurodivergent and, you know, and sensory overload is a real problem. But are you saying that those things are not an issue? Yeah, it's actually not an issue. Interestingly, we're a real, tar- uh, we're a magnet for young people with diverse learning um, needs. And that's because we actually have a school-wide focus on universal design for learning and making sure that we're designing the learning that suits the young people in these spaces. Where it goes wrong is that people go from traditional single-cell classrooms, they might knock out some walls and throw in a whole lot of different kids into an open space, and they haven't changed how they design the learning that goes on in those spaces. And there are different challenges in primary school, but in a secondary school, um, what we see happens is that people design the learning differently. So there might be a little bit less direct instruction. That still happens. Um, But there's a lot of structured um, learning where we're supporting the students to become more self-directed and working collaboratively with each other. And what is interesting, because we talked to um, uh, educator Paul Haywood about this the other day, uh, it's actually... Uh, in a sense, Gary Moore, uh, a back to the future, because he said actually those mm-hmm. uh, in the 70s will recall uh, open classrooms like this. Them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I actually remember them in Monorewa. I had an open plan classroom. So it's not a newfangled fad. Oh, it's actually it it's old school. Let's bring Gary Moore in. Gary, first, Claire, and then you can respond. First of all, I want to uh, uh, offer the uh, Amos family's contribution to New Zealand education. But um, I chaired uh, the Manaya Kalani. Um, oh, uh, fantastic! Down down here for a number of years, mm. and I saw it work really, really well. You know, Hornby Primary and schools like that. This was a, um, and there was a link to um, Hornby Secondary. But I so I I thought oh well that's that's my experience so far so I I rang uh, the the principal of one of my grandchildren's school, a guy who's a really esteemed um, educator here in Christchurch, and he's quite critical of the open mm. classroom and 
he said it doesn't take into account the bell curve of reality. And he said if if he um, if he had to be uh, if it had to be either open or closed, he'd he'd go for closed. Now this this guy's a really mm. seriously good educator. So mm. I, I suspect that there there will be the debate, and that's actually quite healthy. Oh, absolutely! I wish I could lay claim to being part of that Amos education family. I'm not. I'm not. Sometimes I pretend I am because you know. I was going to say I knew your father. <laughs> lovely, lovely Uffy though. <laughs> but um, what I would like to say about that is that standardised testing and chalk and talk also doesn't take into um, account the bell curve of learning and learners that sit in front of us. The, the key for making this work, uh, you know, I have been at Rungkutoto College, Takapuna Grammar, Epsom Girls Grammar right. School, Hobsonville Point and here. Good teaching and learning happens when good learning design happens mm. and that you upskill your teachers to meet the needs of the young people in front of you and to design for the spaces that they're teaching and learning in. My sadness when I hear that is that actually what we have here at Albany Senior High School is the opportunity to do all of the great stuff you can do in a traditional classroom. We have presentation rooms and we can do all of the exciting collaborative and creative stuff as well. It's both mm. and. Nice mm. to have you on, Claire. Thanks mm. for explaining Kyura. That's uh, Claire Amos, principal at uh, Albany Senior <laughs> High School there. Another take on uh, classroom sizes there. Uh, someone says, uh, I am a GP and we are so inundated with viral infections currently uh, that I do shudder to think what it could be like with 90 to 100 kids mingling in one space every day. Uh, that's an- another aspect, I yeah. guess, uh, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's 16 to 5, the panel. We have Gary Moore and Paula Penfold with us. The number of Kiwis dying from drug overdoses is on the increase. It's got so bad. The New Zealand Drug Foundation is calling for urgent action to prevent drug overdose deaths in Aotearoa. They say most of the deaths are linked to opioids, and I thought, well, this is worth shining a light here on the panel. Uh, NZ National, David Collinge is the founder of Red Door Recovery, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation service in Wellington. David, welcome. Cool. You're on this. You're on the front line uh, on this. You see the impact of drug and alcohol abuse every day. Does your experience line up with what the Drug Foundation is saying about overdoses? Well, yes, it does. Um, it uh, and points to them for sort of bringing this into um, into the public arena. It does need discussion, and I think they have some very strong points about steps that could relatively easy, easily be taken um, to save lives. Um, and most of these things uh, are evidence-based. Um, there's uh, strong Australian models. Um, and, uh, for example, naloxone or Narcade, as it's often called, is a, um, a very quick um, reversal of overdose situations. Yeah. But it's um, while it might be in ambulances and so on, Overseas, it's it's very kits are available, and I was even reading on an overseas post uh, from Australia yesterday on online uh, about a mum who's got a son uh, heavily addicted to heroin and opiates, uh, of course, and um, he, he he still lives at home. He has no desire at this point to um, to stop taking heroin, 
but he doesn't leave the house without a uh, naloxone kit in his bag. That means if he were to OD or any of his friends who OD, um, it's right there in the bag, and it's uh, it's saving hundreds, if not thousands, of lives in America and hundreds wow. in Australia. And we should the access to it to it here should be should be freed up. We should follow what's proven. Well, Paula, that's a fairly compelling. Uh, argument. Yeah, it certainly is. And I'm interested to know, so the, the numbers of drug overdose deaths are rising, and is there a growing proportion of those deaths that are from opioids? Is that the problem, part yeah. of the problem? Yeah, opioids uh, is top of the list, I think. I don't have the stats in front of me. Um, so a lot more people, as you're all aware, um, methamphetamine is, is the, the biggie at the moment, but Amphetamines, including methamphetamine, aren't high up the list for overdoses, but some cathinones or bananas, synthetics or um, bath salts, things like that, um, are starting to make a mark as well. But opioids are the, the big ones. And um, there's also a trend um, at the moment where people are sourcing um, morphine sulfate. Now, to transfer, you know, to cook that or change it into diamorphine, which is essentially heroin um, is about an hour-long process and very straightforward and even places like retirement villages are getting targeted there are a lot of people on 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 that particular drug in retirement villages that don't realize what they're doing but um, you know if people reach out and and maybe offer a bit of money they'll they'll kind of unknowingly um, support the problem um, completely innocently um, by giving a few of the morphine sulfate uh, uh, pills away. Right, Gary. How much of this, David, is a rising mental health issue that people can't get the help they need? Um, yeah, I'm going to be kind here and say the system is, is not great. Um, there, it, look, the, the, the government has acknowledged that addiction is a mental health issue. Mm. Um and uh, it's also so you know we we hear the words again yet again Maori are overrepresented, but um, I think you could couch that uh, more generally as a, a lower socio-economic problem. Um, trauma is by far the leading cause for people to start to self-medicate in some shape or form. Um, and I'll give you you know if if your life is pretty good. And you're 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 you know you're you're not struggling financially, and you've you know you've you've got a job, you, and 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 you take heroin, you'll you know it'll have its impact on you, and, and work all the, the feel good neurotransmitters. But if somebody whose life is rubbish, you know, there's couch surfing, and um, they they're having to resort to crime to pay for the habit, um, they and um, and to you know, getting the bash for not making bills, resorting to crime, etc. When when you and that person get high on heroin, you both go to the same place. But when you come down, that other person comes down to a much much lower point. So the desire to self medicate is much stronger um, for people who have a have a rough rough sort of um, lifestyle. I, I guess the I guess the point I'm making is like we've had two health issues here. 
and and what's happening is individual. I, I was on the Area Health Board at one stage. I got sacked by Ruth Richardson. It's a stripe on my arm. Um, well, congratulations, well done. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm very proud of that. Um, but one of the things that um, I noticed is that different specialists will emphasise their speciality rather than the system as a whole. And I think we're seeing a systemic failure all over the place. And um, this is this is another indicator. People can't get into mental health services. No, there simply are not enough resources. I mean, our beds are always full. Um, we've, I, I guess um, about um, 15 to sometimes 20% of the time our clients, the main substance of our problem will be opioids or synthetics. Um, but the whole, I mean, really, we, we have to go to the beginning, you know, to start earlier intervention. If, um, you know, um, you can identify where the problems are going to be by the time a child is about three years old, you know, five yeah, years old in primary school. David, it's very nice to have you on the program to explain Cura. Appreciate your time. That's David Collins there, who is the founder of Red Door Recovery, uh, a drug and alcohol rehab service in Wellington. Uh, he is seeing the impact of drug and alcohol abuse every day. He's on the front line. So real world experiences there with David Collins. Eight away from five, the panel, and very nice to have you company this afternoon, uh, Wednesday. Now, bilingual signage has been the topic of much controversy lately, has it not? But not so down, not so down in Dunedin. Yesterday, the council voted back Waka Kotahi's drive for increased bilingual signage, and it was unanimous. Councillors supported more use of Te Reo Māori and said incorporating it into signage would help normalise it mm. as a living language. With us is one of those councillors, David Benson Pope. Kia ora, David. Good afternoon. So what really interested me was, I guess, uh, a council here voting it unanimous. Um, was it a surprise to you or anyone? Uh, yeah, I, I was um, pleasantly surprised with the maturity of the discussion. I don't mean that in a patronising sort of way, but we've sort of had it, the issue highlighted a bit because we've just opened a new swimming pool in Moscow. Um, and it has a Māori name. It's called Tupuno Afarehu, which is the name of the silver stream adjacent to the pool site. And a lot of the locals, both in Moscow and elsewhere, have objected to the fact its name is solely in Māori. They've forgotten, of course, that our main swimming pool is called Moana, um, but that's <laughs> just a casual observation. And I think um, that's highlighted, it's brought out some of the... Um, some of the bigotry around these issues. Um, but that, I think everyone put that behind us. And um, and we, the general discussion was this, this should be something we celebrate, that we embrace and recognise. Um, um, good to be Dunedin leading the way, of course, normal sort of state of affairs that, uh, mm -hmm. Gary, you will be only too aware of. But of course. Um, I think it was a very good outcome. We went around the houses a bit around which language should be on top uh, and colours and point size of the of the text, uh, but ended up uh, without altering in any way the recommendations okay. for 
consultation from the agency. So let's, go around the, let's go around the panel, David, uh, and we'll come back to you, Paula Penfold. Kia ora, David. Congratulations to your council on, as you say, a mature decision. And I'll, I'll pass it on, Paula. <laughs> and rejecting that bigotry, I think that's exactly the right word for it. I mean, it's... It wasn't ever really about the signage, was it? You know, I, no, you look no. at some of the complaints and people who are supposedly worried about this as an issue seem to know which way to turn if they're choosing between Taupo and Rotorua, don't they? Yeah. So it was never, ever about the signage. It was just about an outlet for their bigotry. That's right. And I have to say, we did learn... Um, a few lessons about which which council colleagues we shouldn't drive with as part of the discussion. <laughs> um, but the two most powerful comments, I think, were made by um, a couple of colleagues who talked about um, the fact that we celebrate Kapahaka and the national anthem wouldn't be the same if the first verse weren't in te reo. And, and, you know, um, and that we should just embrace this. And uh, I think that's... Uh, I, I was delighted that... That's the position we got to, oh, Gary. You know, sorry. Let's, we've let's all bring. A lot sorry, David. Yeah. Who doesn't like seeing the koru, you know, on a tail of a plane in New York or Frankfurt or something? It's just mm. part of what we are. Right, Gary Moore. I I think it's a great a great thing, and uh, for me, I think the key thing to bring people with you is to actually have both Māori and English, so that people can actually see, oh, is that what it means? And it is part of the educating process for us all. I spend time looking at Tirio and and saying, ah, right, so that's that. And there's a, there's a column in the Sunday Times every Sunday, and this columnist teaches us what words mean. And uh, I, I, I think it's great. I mean, if you go to Ireland, there's Gaelic and there's... Right. English, you know. Okay, so David, both our panelists are uh, on board with it as well. So, do you, do you, do you, what, do you, what sort of sense do you get from the wider Dunedin community? Are they on board with it? Oh, I think so. Um, sure, we've got a, we've got our share of rednecks, haven't we all? <laughs> um, but uh, this is part of our cultural evolution, really. Uh, and I think most for most people, it's a perfectly natural, normal, and highly desirable step to take. And I'm yep. really glad we have. Um, supported it so overwhelmingly. The South leads again, David. That's it, that's it. You're on to it. Good to have you uh, on the programme. David Benson-Pope there, uh, one of the councillors who voted for that unanimous decision um, uh, backing Waka Kotahi's drive for increased bilingual signage. Interesting, isn't it, Paula, because you've got another southern counterpart not far away from Dunedin, uh, and there's a, it's a quite a different story there. Seems to be, doesn't it, from the reporting that we've seen. Um, but may they, may David's council be an example to others around the country? Uh, just jumping into more feedback, uh, quite a bit around um, flexible learning environments, uh, flexible collaborative learning space that plans using universal design of learning principles I would never go back into a traditional space. This is a teacher. Uh, Rebecca says the traditional space cannot meet the diverse needs of our learners today. And goodness gracious me, your your, your vegan feedback, particularly regarding what Gary Moore said about you all, uh, <laughs> is just uh, flowing in. So <laughs> thank <laughs> you. I better not th- go to th- a th- vegan restaurant <laughs> for a while. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Quite hungry now, though, for a strawberry. Yeah, a strawberry and a, strawberry and a s- vegan meal. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right, good on you both, Paula Pitfall, Gary Moore, Kia ora. Thank you. Uh, I'm Wallace Chapman. Stay with Checkpoint for the very latest in the news with Lisa Owen. I'm Wallace Chapman, and thank you to Tim Miller. I'm back tomorrow, 3.45.